you have a Bible, that's great, open it. If not, there's Bibles back there. We are in a seven-part series called The Gospel According to Moses. Kind of a short look, kind of a, a, a seven-part look at the high points of, of Moses' life and the salvation and identification of the Jewish people. So much is going on in the news about the Jewish people. Our study takes us to the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible, second book of the Torah, the Pentateuch, which is the five books of Moses. And we're in chapter 13. We're going to look at chapter 13 a little bit and chapter 14. Now, the word Exodus means departure. Exodus is a continuation of the Genesis story, where in Genesis, the promises was made to Abraham that he will be uh, raised up. God made a covenant with him that he will have a great nation, will come from him, right? There'll be, there'll be a, a, a great lineage. They promised Abraham, there will be a promised land, a great lineage, and through that lineage will come one who is born, a male child, who will defeat Satan, crush him, and have victory over sin, death, and hell. That deliver, of course, that Messiah we sang about, his name is Jesus. Exodus wrapped up, if we could say it in one sentence, is the story of the redeeming work of God for his glory and our good, our salvation. Redeeming work of God for his glory and our good. The titles, in ser- titles of the sermon is Getting Out, Part 2. It's actually, the literal, it's actually a look at the literal um, deliverance of the Israelites from captivity. Remember, the book opens up with Israel in captivity in Egypt in slavery. And we said that kind of is a picture of a foreshadow of the reality and the principle that, that God wants us to see is that slavery, according to the Scripture is serving and worshiping anything more important to God, treasuring, clinging to, having the centrality of your life being anything more important than God. And we're all slaves, we all need to be set free, and we cannot be set free by our own deeds, our own will, but by God alone. We'll see that clearly today. Part one, a few weeks ago, we looked at the scripture, the portion of scripture where Moses has his first encounter with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. We also saw that God sent the ten plagues into Egypt. And then finally, we ended with a look at the Passover. If you remember that from a couple of weeks ago. Today, the actual release, rescue, deliverance of the Israelites as they leave Egypt to worship the Lord on their way to Mount Sinai. Understand this this morning, and I want to make this really clear. I want you to get this. The Exodus is the greatest redemptive event in the entire Old Testament. It's spoken about repeatedly throughout the Old Testament in the Psalms, in the Proverbs. Yahweh is depicted as the one who brought them out from Egypt, the one that brought them out from the land of Egypt. They sing about it. One that brought them out of the bondage of slavery. It's the mighty act of God's redemptive work all throughout the Old Testament. Israel celebrates it in her creeds. She sang it in their worship. The prophets continually reminding Israel that their election and their covenant were closely related to this act, this exodus, this story. It's a defining moment, a crucial place for Israel. I think it's, it's right to say that Israel is created in exodus as a nation brought out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, was essentially bringing them into being as a people. But it doesn't stop there. In fact, Paul tells us in Corinthians that the whole Exodus experience was written for our instruction. 
that was written to show us, it was written to show us and teach us about the better and the greater deliverer and deliverance in Christ. If you remember part one, Moses goes to Pharaoh. He says, let my people go that they may worship me. And Pharaoh's like, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should let you go? I will not let you go. And it was that question, who is the Lord, that sent, really was, was, the, was the driving force of the plagues that God sent. He was going to show Pharaoh and all of Egypt who the Lord really was as he took dominion over every single aspect of the earth. Also, we saw God's kindness. Every time God sent the plague, what did he do? He told Egypt, get ready. Repent, get ready. Let the people go. Like I'm trying to tell you, no, okay, next plague came. We saw that God, in his grace and mercy, told him what was going to happen and then sent the judgment of the plagues. The final plague, we know, is the death of the firstborn child. God told him it was coming. And he told the Israelites that they were... They, that in order to be safe, in order to be secure, in order to um, sidestep destruction, they are to kill a lamb, a spotless lamb, to shed its blood, to, to take the place of the dead son, they would have a dead lamb. And that morning when, the, when, when, when everyone woke up, there was either a dead lamb whose blood was shed as a substitute or a dead son in the land of Egypt or a dead son. The Israelites who took cover under the lamb, the blood that was shed as a substitute, they, they were spared. Because when God's judgment comes down, it comes down on everyone unless you take cover. He's telling them, you, you, you're going to be destroyed. Justice is coming down. You're indebted to God. You have sin. God's justice is coming. The only way to be safe is to take cover under the blood. That's for all of us because all of us have sinned. No one is perfect and all of us indebted to God because of our sin. Folks, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to know that Jesus is a better and greater substitute. He is the greater and better sacrifice. His blood was shed that we could be spared from death, sin, and hell. You need to take cover under the Lamb. You need to take cover under the blood. By faith, trusting in the work of Jesus on the cross, if there's anything you need to hear today, that's it. That the Exodus Passover was pointing to a greater substitute, a greater person, a greater redeemer, and his name is Jesus. That's what the story's about. But that night when destruction came, Pharaoh's son, his glory, the heir to the throne was also dead. He woke up in the morning and the heir to the throne, God struck we read in chapter 12 that after that incident, after the 10th plague, after Moses uh, warned them and after God sent judgment on the earth, he called Moses, the king, and Aaron. And this is what he said, chapter 12, verse 31. Up, get out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as you said. Take your flocks, take your herds, as you have said, and be gone. And then you know what he said? Chapter 12, verse 32. Before you go, Moses, Aaron, bless me. Bless me. Starting to see who God really is and who God's people really is. Bless me. It doesn't last very long, but you see a glimpse of that. And in haste, of course, Moses gathers the flocks together, gathers the people together, and they boogie out of town. We're being released. God said this was going to happen. Let's go. And in haste, they leave. And that's where we pick up our story. We'll see our 
story under, under three headings. The, the direction of God's people, chapter 13 in the end. The denial of God's people, if you're taking notes. And the deliverance of God's people. So the direction, the denial, and deliverance of God's people. Turn to Exodus 13 with me. Chapter, chapter 13, verse 17. This verse kind of sets the stage of what's going to happen when the drama unfolds in 14 with the whole rescuing from, the, uh, from, from Egypt and through the Red Sea. 13, chapter 13, verse 17 through 22 sets that stage. Okay? And the story begins with Moses telling us, chapter 13, verse 17, Moses telling us the direction, the way in which Israel was going to be brought out of Egypt on their way to the promised land. Gives us the direction, the way in which they were going to go. And I don't think that Moses gives us this direction in Scripture to give us a lesson on geography. I, I, I don't think that's why it's here. What's he wants, what Moses wants us to know, both then and now, you here this morning, is how the providence of God, the outworking of God's sovereign plan, is working out for our salvation. He's pointing to not geography, but theology. And here's the big picture. Okay, let's wrap our heads around this big picture. God knows his people. God rules over his people. Even in your struggles, even in your weaknesses, even in your temptations, he's working, but he does so in such a way that in the end, or the purposes of it, it's for his own glory and for your good. For your Good and his glory. His glory, his greatness, glory. His preeminence, glory. His infinite intrinsic value, his glory. Okay? To see him as the greatest treasure and value that he has in and of himself to the world. That's his glory. So it's for his glory that we see that and for our good. Notice what he tells them. Verse 17. He says, not to go the easy way, not the short route. He says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see the war and return to Egypt. Verse 18. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up and out of the land, and leaving land of Egypt equipped for battle. Now, we don't know exactly what route that is. There's been different commentators say different thing, or even, we don't even have the exact spot that they crossed the Red Sea. There's different speculation. But as I said, that's not the point. It's not geography, it's theology. God did not want his people to enter Canaan in the easy, direct route right from Egypt to the Promised Land. A well-established coastal road that people used in that day called the Via Maras, even though it was the shortest and easiest route. He said, don't go that way. Because if he had led them that way, they would have met the Philistines in that territory. Believe it or not, it's by the Gaza Strip. I know that's unbelievable, but it is. And they were going to fight the Philistines. That's what they're doing now. But he said, you know what? They're not ready for that. I know my people. I know their weaknesses. I know their temptations. They're not ready for that. God knew... And, and, and folks, you're predictable. You, you think you're predictable to your family? 
Like, I could tell you what's going on in my, in my family, maybe my daughters, or something going on. I'm, I'm not 100%, but I'm pretty good. God is predictable 100% of the time. He's like, yeah, they're getting ready for battle. Let them stand against one Philistine and watch them run the other way. God knows you. God knows your weaknesses. God knows the temptations. And in God's good providence, he steps in. He goes, no, you're not going that way because you'll lose heart. If you go that way, you're going to lose heart. And you've got to ask the question, are they that finicky? Like within like two days of being delivered, they're going back and they're going to say, I, I, I'm going back to slavery. I'm going back to Egypt. Really? Yeah. God's like, yeah. That, that, that's how finicky they are. Now, before we judge, let's relate. Have you ever witnessed the mighty hand of God in a miraculous way through prayer or whatever, and you find yourself in the midst of a difficult situation the next day, and you're like, I've lost heart. Oh, man, that was awesome. God was awesome. He answered prayer. That was awesome. Next day, you're like, God, where are you? God, I'm in this situation. Where are you? All right, that's convicting. Let's move on. There, but there, there'll come a day when Israel will fight the Philistines, okay? And I'm not talking about like this morning, but in that day, a couple of years later, they're going to fight, but not for their salvation. See, I want you to see that. I want, I want you to see that clear principle. The work of God in their situation for their salvation is the work that God does alone. Israel is not going to have a part in the redemptive act of God. It's not going to say, oh yeah, we fought them. We did our part, God did our part. Kind of a two-handed salvation, that's not biblical. God saves, God delivers. Here's the point. You and I cannot be rescued from slavery until we are completely broken in ourselves. Coming to the place where we are completely dependent on the work of God in our place for our sins. There's nothing we can offer to him. So in light of these concerns about God's people readiness or unreadiness for war, God deliberately leads his people by the way of the wilderness. Right? It was best for them to be there so that they will learn to trust him. Now, now verse 19 we don't have time to look at it, but it's important. They pick up the bones before they leave. And really what that's pointing to is that before they can move on, they take a look back. There was a promise that Joseph made, uh, that they made, that Joseph said, take my bones, don't leave them here in Egypt. God promised that we're out of here one of these days, don't leave my bones there. And what you see Israel doing is remembering the promises of God and acting on that promise that was made centuries earlier. They grab the bones and out the door they go. Okay? So, Again, connected to Genesis, that's, that happened in Genesis chapter 50, and we see them move on. So turn in your Bibles as we continue. I'm going to read a longer passage of Scripture, verse 20, and uh, through chapter 14, verse 9, okay? So if you're following along, chapter 14, excuse me, 13, verse 20. Where is verse 20? Okay. And they moved on, got the bones ready to go, and they moved on from Succoth and encamped in Etham. On the edge of the wilderness, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. 
chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Harathoth, Ha-Hurath, between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And the Lord says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and will pursue them and will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Okay, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what? What what is this we're doing that we have let Israel go from serving us? Make it sound like they were at, you know, Starbucks serving us. They were slaves. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with them. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. So he got his army together. Chapter 14, verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel. While the people of Israel were going out defiantly, the Egyptian pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and encamped at the sea by Pi-Heroth in front of Baal-Zephon. Okay, that's where we're at. Now, one of the things that stands out in that narrative that I just read to you, for me anyway, is that in the midst of this direction, this planning, this, this direction that God is taking the Israelites, and in the direction that this, this pursuit of the Egyptian is, is going after them, is that God takes very seriously his glory. I will get glory. You will know that I am the Lord. Whether it's the deliverance, the redemption of Israel, or the destruction of Egyptians, God will get glory. God refuses, the Bible says, to share it with anyone else. The Israelites are told in chapter 14, verse 2, to do an about face. Okay? Now follow me. They're going in one direction. They can't go the easy way. They're like, this is the most easiest way. God's like, no, you go this way. So they go that way. And then as they're headed, God's like, okay, now stop. I want you to do an about face. I want you to turn around and I want you to go toward the wilderness to a place where you're going to stop and be stuck at. Now, you know the end of the story, but put yourself in their position. We're going, right, God's driving the bus. We're like, oh, the the route's right this way. No, we're not going that way. Really, it's it's right there. No, no, we're going to turn around. Okay, all right. All right, stop. Now, why don't you, I want you to go this direction. Well, you, you brought us here. You brought us there. And now you're bringing us here. And, and Lord, we're at a dead end. Like, there's no place else to go. Right, that's where we're going. Really? Hmm. Why? Because the Israelites needed to know. Just like the Egyptians. The Israelites also need to know that he is the Lord. That he alone should be worshipped. He alone can set them free. He alone They need to be dependent on to be free from slavery and bondage. God has brought the Israelites to the place of helplessness to display his power and his glory. Some of you are trying hard to do what God alone can do. And it hurts when God breaks us 
and brings us to the place of helplessness and brokenness. But it's for His glory and your salvation. Over and over we see in the book of Genesis and Exodus the good providence of God working for His glory and our good in the midst of a difficult times and arduous times, trials in our lives. It's over and over and over in Scripture. Whether it's Abraham, whether it's Joseph, whether it's, whether it's uh, his wives, whatever it is, God is working for His glory and our joy. Sometimes we get in these situations because of stupid decisions that we make. Amen? Come on. Sometimes we get in these situations, are just trials in our lives because of stupid decisions other people make. Now I can get an amen, right? All right, amen. But every time the hand of God is working, you belong to him, you're his child, he's trying to, he's, he's, he wants to display his glory, he is glorious, he's trying to display his glory for his glory and our good. Now, what we see, they didn't have the luxury to see, is that the reason that God had brought them to that place, if you think about it, in hindsight, they don't know this, it's easier for them. God brought him to the place where he was just going to open the sea and send them through. They didn't know that. Have you ever been in a trial and difficulty in your life and thought, and I, I don't do this, but and thought, you know what? As hard and arduous and difficult this situation may be, maybe God brought this into my life because he was keeping me from this problem, this trial, this more severe situation in my life. Do you ever consider in the trial that God has sent his son, the Lord Jesus, on the hard way? And what we're going through is, is, is easier relatively than the way in which his son had to go? God has reasons for the strange paths that he sometimes leads us in. And if he does not lead us in the shortest way, he does lead us in a way which is both simultaneously for his glory and our good. I realize, folks, I, I wasn't raised in a silver spoon. I realize it's easier to say than to believe in the midst of a trial. I do. I'm telling you what the scriptures teach. I'm telling you what God has revealed himself, that in the arduous times, you can trust God. You can trust him that he's getting glory. You can trust him that it's for your good. And here again, we see, again, his glory being revealed in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. God hardens his heart, Pharaoh changes his mind. God hardens his heart, Pharaoh says, you know what, I don't know why we let them go, let's get them back. And you see again the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, both are true. Pharaoh's responsible for the actions and choices he makes, and yet God is sovereign over them. So the hardening of Pharaoh's heart was not God's response to Pharaoh, but his purposes for Pharaoh, that he would drive Pharaoh to the place in the wilderness after the Israelites to the very place, to the very spot in which God ordained. We're 100% predictable. In fact, he makes it clear for us what's going on. God makes it clear. It's not a surprise. Verse 3, God tells Moses exactly what he was up to. He says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you this way, and I want two things that are going to happen with Pharaoh. Number one, the, at Israel, he's going to say he's walking around aimlessly. He does. And the second thing Pharaoh's going to think is that Israel's trapped, and he does. God, we're told in verse 4, plans to use it to harden Pharaoh's heart and entice him to his own destruction. And the greater purpose is revealed in verse 4. God's not just delivering Israel. The main purpose, according here, is the display of his glory. He's using Pharaoh, his army, the instruments 
are instruments of his glory so that all Egyptians will know, again, that he is the Lord God, creator, sovereign, majestic, God of the universe. He's going to answer that question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? He's going to find out. And God says, you know what? I'll let you know who I am. In fact, I'll let you know. I'll let the Israelites know. I'll let the whole world know who I am. He has the purpose of displaying his glory, the purpose of revealing himself as the Lord. And the story, as it's unfolding, is God is bringing Egypt toward the Israelites, and Israelites are fleeing. As it's unfolding, God's getting glory for himself. That will happen in the destruction of Egypt and the deliverance, liberation of Israel. Now listen, before we move on to the next point. As God directs his people and his glory is seen and revealed, when it's rejected, there's destruction. Who is the Lord that I should do that? Pay no mind to him. But when God's glory is revealed and embraced by grace, there's salvation. God reveals his glory through scripture, through the preaching of his word. What are you going to do with it? Will he embrace it and be saved? Will he reject it and be destroyed? The denial. Verse, chapter 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to have served the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. <laughs> so these chariots, 600 chariots, horses, these, these uh, Egyptian armies coming, and everyone's like, there's only two options. Two, that's it. The Egyptians like either come back and serve us or we're killing you. And the options for the Israelites were like, listen, we're going to die here or we're going to go back to be slaves. And what's their option? And what do they take? They look up, they see their trap, they see the army coming, right? And their confidence about what's going on completely falls away. They look up and they feel they're trapped, and now all of a sudden they're afraid. Rather than look to the glory and to the grace and the provision of God, they look away and they are afraid. Like Peter, it reminds me of Peter. Come, Peter, come, come out of the boat, come walk. And Peter says, yes, Lord, he steps out by faith. And all of a sudden, he sees the wind and the rain. He freaks out. He gets afraid, and down he goes. Took his eyes off of Jesus. Do you know what's missing in this story? I mean, can you imagine a, a sensible group of people would at least say, all right, it's only been a couple of days, if that much. God sent those plagues, man. That was something, man. A month, you know, a, a month of these plagues. I mean, God has done so much Boy, I'll tell you what, they come one step closer, God's going to get them. I don't know what God's going to do this time because they already killed the firstborn, but let's wait and see what's going to happen next. We just witnessed this, you know, irrefutable, observable evidence of his omnipotence and power, his commitment to us. The army, the greatest army in the world has been crushed, brought to its knees. You think you would say, hmm, let's, let's see what happens. Verse 8 says they left defiantly, which means they left boldly. So, so they left like, yeah. We got this now, trying to do something on our God. We'll show you who our God is. All of a sudden, they're like, oh, my word. You know, they're afraid. The first sign of danger. It's like, don't you have any faith at all? 
How many times are we confronted with fear? And maybe you're like me, you don't respond always in faith. God is teaching, trust me, trust me, trust me. He is worthy of our trust. Sometimes what I do, like the Israelites do when you're afraid, I start making stuff up. Remember things very differently than they actually happened. You're like, ah, and you start, you know, like living in denial. Look what they say. The living in denial of the past, verse 12. He says to Moses, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptian? We told you we don't want to leave. You wouldn't listen to us. That's not true. That's denial. That's a change of facts. In fact, in chapter 16, they go to Moses. They're like, why don't you leave us in Egypt? Man, we were eating a smorgasbord. Like, we had buffets every night. Like, what? No, you didn't. They were denied about the past. They were also denied about the future. He says, aren't there any graves in Egypt? You take us here to die in the wilderness like we're going to die right now? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness? Folks, that's like major sarcasm. Major sarcasm. Bazinga, as they would say, right? There are a lot of graves in Egypt. The pyramids were graves. I mean, graves in Egypt were like tie-dye t-shirts at a Grateful Dead reunion, right? I mean, they're everywhere. Like, if you're looking for a grave, you're like, come on, let's go see what they got in Egypt. I mean, that's where you would go. Like, there's not enough graves? Of course there are. Now, think about this. Think of where the Israelites are. Think of where the army is. On the edge of the wilderness, by the Red Sea, pillar of fire, pillar of, you know, block them in, they're trapped, they're afraid. Are the Israelites free or are they in bondage? Are they free or are they enslaved? And that will depend on your definition of freedom, your definition of salvation. What does it mean to be a slave? What does it mean to be in bondage? To some of us, they're free. They're out of Egypt. They have left the, 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 the slave masters behind. They have moved over. They're no longer in chains on the Egyptian rule. But yet this narrative reminds us that though they are no longer in Egypt, they have not made it to the promised land. They have not heard the law. They have not gone to Mount Sinai. They are not there worshiping, which God said, set them free so that they may worship me. Some of us think like that too. You think, I'm not a slave to anyone. I have no master. I have no God. I don't believe in anything. I don't have any bad, evil habits. I'm truly free. That's not what the text is telling us. They are still slaves. They're slaves to fear. They're slaves to circumstances. They're slaves to their denials. Their delusions. Some folks wrongly think that having no restrictions and being free to make your individual choice, what you want to do, is somehow true freedom. It is not. Freedom is not to be your own person, to belong only to you, to have no masters and no lords at all. That's what Exodus is teaching us, that that's impossible. Look at the contrast. Look at the contrast between Moses and the people. The people are free out of bondage, yet they're afraid. What's Moses? Moses is calm as can be. He tells them, look, fear not. Stand firm. The Lord will fight for you. That Hebrew phrase is, phrase is what they call a negative imperative. It's the strongest language possible. He wasn't comforting them. He was spanking them. Okay, that's what he was doing. He was, he was rebuking them. Moses is like, look, what are you kidding? 
You guys are in slavery. You guys are in fear. You guys are in, 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 in bondage through your circumstances. Don't be afraid. Watch what the Lord will do. Why the contrast? Because Moses has met God in the burning bush. Moses came face to face with Yahweh. Moses was changed by the presence of Jesus. Moses was called in for the gospel and then sent out on mission. He was changed. And you see him free. Listen, you're in denial if you think that to be saved, delivered, free from bondage, to have no Lord, no master, and belong only to yourself. That's a fallacy. It doesn't exist. You're either a slave to God or you're a slave to something else, but you never are your own. Either the Lord is the absolute Lord, Savior of your world, of your life, or you're in slavery to something else. There's no alternatives, nothing in between. So richly seen in this narrative. That's why I said it depends on what you call salvation. It depends on what you call freedom. It depends on what you call being in bondage. It could be very different than from what the Scriptures teach us. God said, let my people go that they may worship me. God understands that true worship is where we can find freedom. Now, Tim Keller, who, who did a great job in this, in this entire book, uh, give him kudos, has taught me a lot, S- talks about in his sermon, it's called The Great Escape. He mentions four things that show us that we're in bond. I just want to mention to you quickly. First, he says, all of us, you and I, everyone live for something. There, there has to be something that we... T- you and I individually look to give us meaning, to give us a sense of significance, to give us purpose in life, why we are here. Rocky Balboa, his girlfriend said, why are you doing this, Rocky? Because if I, if I can stand a distance, if I, I know if I can go to distance, I won't be a bum. For Rocky was making it to the end when the bell sounded, that he won't be a bum. All of us fight that. Every human being fights that about being a bum. Maybe I'm not really that much. Maybe I'm not very important. Maybe my life really means nothing. Maybe really everything I'm doing is pointless, makes no difference. Maybe I'm a bum. Now, we use different language, but everyone is living for something. Number two, whatever you live for, whatever you serve, it controls you. you got to have it. Whatever you are clinging to that makes you have a sense of significance, of value, your personhood, your self-image is something that you have to have, and it controls you. You don't want to believe it, but it's true. We don't want to think of ourselves as slaves to something. I mentioned this last week, Bob Dylan. You're going to serve somebody, right? Whether it's the devil or whether it's the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. And whatever it is you serve that you've got to have, it controls you. Number three. Whatever you're living for in your life and enslaves you, it could be a good thing or a bad thing. We think of slavery, a lot of times we think of bad things, drug addiction, uh, porn addiction, um, alcohol addiction. We think of those bad things. But good things enslave us, like having good kids, having a good marriage, working hard. When good things become the ultimate things, they enslave us. we got to have it. Everybody, unless God is the absolute center of your life, is a slave. You're enslaved to good things that's more essential, more important, more significant, more rooted in who you are is other than God, we are enslaved, even good things. And fourth, if you fail to get it or lose it, the thing you're building your life around, it will come after you just like you see in the story and say, serve me or die. 
whatever you're building, if you're building your life around being a good parent, you're putting all your stock in your children, and something happens with your children, they go bad, what happens to you? If you put everything around, I work hard, I'm a morally right person, I do the right thing, I'm working hard, let your health fail, let your business fold, then what happens to you? Right? There's self-contempt, there's anger, there, there's, there's uh, uh, just kind of an explosive reaction to that because you've built your life around even good things become masters in your life. It happens to all of us. Let me give you an experience. So if you're saying, I'm not really quite sure, let me tell you something from my own life, okay? I want to be a good pastor. I think that's a good thing. When things go wrong, it's upsetting to me. If there are things that hinder my success or hinder the ministry here of me doing a good job, if those things that hinder me, I feel somewhat irritated, okay? If something or someone threatens me or threatens the ministry, I may feel somewhat afraid. But if being a good pastor, a good community group leader, a good pastor in process, okay? Uh, maybe a pastor wannabe, you want to be a pastor. But if being a, a good pastor and the success of this church is actually more important to me, to my self-image, to my value and worth than what God says about me in the gospel, it becomes my functional savior at that moment, even Christians go through this. At that moment, I'm not living in the gospel and all that God has said about me. If I keep telling myself that my value worth is built in and connected to my success when things go wrong or things get in my way, it's not just irritation, it's an eruption of anger. If things become difficult, things don't go my way, it may be upsetting to me, but if my life is built around that, it's devastating to me. And if I'm threatened, I won't just feel somewhat afraid, mildly afraid. I become frozen in fear because my old ways of justifying myself rears its ugly head and it says, serve me or die. You need this. Ladies, gentlemen, brothers and sisters, a lot of times we know what our idols are by our anger. The things that we are threatened, the things that are being stripped from us. Brings not just anger, brings eruption and an emptiness of self. That's your idol. And God is saying, unless you are wrapped, unless you see and savor, savor me, unless you find your freedom in the finished work of Christ, in the utter worship of the Most High God, you're, you're not free. Until we are overwhelmed by the love of God, Behold him as the most glorious treasure and, and, and cling to him as the ultimate treasure. You're in slavery to bondage. And I'll tell you this before we move on. God is the only one. God is the only one who can command and demand that we love him and give him glory and not be an egotistical slave monger. Why? Because loving and serving him is what we were made for. If I demanded that from my family, I would be twisted. But God demands it because his glory is our good. So the question, why have you brought us here, God? What, what, what is, why are we here? Why are we trapped? God would say, I brought you here to see my glory. That's why I brought you here. I haven't brought you here so you can be comfortable or it can be easy. I brought you here to see my glory. Stop living in denial. Stop thinking your freedom is having no master. But fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, in which we will see the deliverance of God's people. Chapter 14, verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, 
Why do you cry to me? Let the people of Israel go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry, dry ground. Verse 19. Okay, no, verse 17. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten my glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt, the army of Egypt, and the army of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong wind all night and made the sea dry up, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. The Egyptians pursued and went, into, went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning, watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud look down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, great verse, verse 25, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. They got it. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon the horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning came. And the Egyptians fled into it. The Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand. He repeats it. Thus the Lord, verse 30, saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. We don't know the exact place that this took place, where they crossed. But if you've been around watching anything, you know that there's all kinds of explanations. Oceanographer Dr. Duran Knopf of Florida, uh, Dr. Nathan Paldo of Hebrew University, says this, that the, in the Gulf of Suez, which is where they cross, somewhere near there, winds of 40 knots blow steadily for 10 to 12 hours. It might push the water back a mile or two to the south. It can cause a 10-foot drop in sea level, exposing a large swath of seafloor sea over which Israelites pass, on which Pharaoh's troops were drowned. Our physical and mathematical analysis shows that both values for the drop in sea surface height and withdrawal distance for the water are more than sufficient to cause the calamity that befell the Egyptians. So it was a natural thing that took place. Now that might sound good, and you scientists might go, well, it doesn't fit scriptures, I'm sorry. The Bible says that the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground and a wall of water. I don't know when's the last time you saw a wall of water. I certainly have not. On the left and on the right, the actual word wall in the Hebrew is used for the city walls. There was a wall of water. 
the prophet, it says here in the Bible, that, that Moses, when he took out his staff, this took place. In other words, signaling, signaling that this was going to happen, that it began. Yes, there was wind. Yes, there was the prophet. But I'll tell you what, it is the power of God. The whole chapter is full of divine intervention and activity. God said, raise the staff, watch what happens. God says, I'll harden the hearts, watch what happens. God says, they'll chase after you, watch what I said. God said, I'll protect you, I'll send the pillar of fire, I'll send, I'll set up between, I mean, God is seen as the one over and over and over in this text as the one who delivers them. He throws them into panic. He gets their clogged, their wheels clogged. He, you know, all this is because of what God is doing. The Egyptians knew it. I mean, you know, you're like, let me see. That was 6,000 years ago. You're telling me now, 6,000 years later, that this is what happened. According to my Bible, the Egyptians, the army that hated him, the one that tried to kill him, said, let us free from the Lord. It's the Lord that's doing this. Even the enemies knew that. Here's the power of God. Donald Bridge tells the story of a liberal minister preaching in an old Bible-believing African-American church. At a certain point in the sermon, the minister referred to the crossing of the Red Sea. Praise the Lord, someone shouted. Taking all them children through the deep waters. What a mighty miracle. The minister wasn't happy about that, so he said rather condescendingly, it was not a miracle. They were in a harsh land. The tide was ebbing, and the children of Israel picked their way across six inches of water. Someone else shouted, praise the Lord, drowning all those Egyptians just six inches of water. What a mighty miracle. <laughs> Some may think drowning the army is a, is, a, is a mean thing to do. But I'm telling you, it was just and right. Pharaoh and his soldiers were cruel. They murdered the firstborn children. They, they put them in slavery. They were treating them, and they murdered children, innocent children. What happened in the sea was divine retribution. The men deserve to be punished for their sins and God is glorified as he judges people for their sins because it displays his glory and attribute of divine justice. You don't believe that? You hope in justice. A nation is set up in justice. You know right and wrong. Think of it this way. Suppose I have a neighbor and I say, come on over, and my kids are small, and I say, come on over and play. The kids come over and play, and about an hour later, my daughter comes in and she's got a bruise on her arm. Now, honey, what happened? Oh, uh, so-and-so next door hit me with a bat. Really? Okay, come here, boy. Listen, uh, we don't swing bats in my house. So put the bat down. Don't do it again. Okay. An hour later, I look out. There's the kid chasing my daughter with a bat. I'd be like, oh, come here, come here. Then we, we had this conversation already. Put the bat down. Second time, third time. Third time, I'm like, yo, come here, come here, come here, come here. Give me the bat. Get out. Go home. Because you ain't hanging out here. You are not coming in my home. You're not coming in my property. Two hours later, there's his father and his mother, the rest of the children across the street yelling, you call yourself a Christian? You won't even let my kids in your house. You're, you're not loving. You're mean. My daughter got me by the arm, squeezing me, going, Daddy, thank you for loving me, for protecting me like you do. Matter of perspective. It's a matter of perspective. God delivered his people from slavery and bondage and cruelty. But why didn't the Israelites drown? Why, if God's justice when comes down, it comes down on everyone, why, if Israelites were sinners and you and I are sinners, why were they delivered? 
Why are we delivered? So the question really is, the waters of judgment, wall on both sides, judgment is coming down, righteous, divine retribution will have its way, rightly so, and yet the Israelites do not come through. The Israelites come through the water. Look at verse 15. Because the Israelites had a mediator. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Moses, why are you crying out to me? Commentators are baffled by that because Moses wasn't crying out to him. Moses didn't say anything. The people did. Later in chapter 32, Moses is, is, is seeing the Israelites worshiping a, a, a golden calf. And he says to God, he says to them, you've created a great sin Perhaps I will make atonement for your sin. And Moses went to the Lord and said, what a great sin these people have done. Now, Lord, please forgive them of their sins, but if not, blot me out of the book of life. That's what Moses says. How could he say that? Because he understood the work of a mediator and the fact that Moses is only pointing to a greater and better mediator, a greater and better deliverer. Tim Keller writes, you've got one man who is so identified with the Israelites, that's Moses, that their guilt is upon him, and a man so identified with God that God's power is coming through him. Raising of the staff, you see all that. Moses is the man in the middle. He's so identified with the people that he gets rebuked for their sin. He's so identified with God that he's a vehicle for God's saving power, end quote. Jesus is the true and better mediator. He's not just fully man who is close to God. He's the mediator who is fully God and fully man. Not only that, he's the mediator who's not rebuked for one sin. The Bible says that for our sake he made him who who knew no sin to be sin, all of our sin, so that we may become the righteousness of God. Moses got a rebuke that you deserve, but I got everything you deserve. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, Moses stepped in and took a rebuke for the sins of the people. I stepped in and took judgment and wrath for you. If you put your faith in me, I will lead you out. I will break the bondage of sin, death, and hell. I will lead you into the place of the promised land where there is freedom and there is worship. The only way to get out, the only way to be free, your freedom is only found through the greater and better mediator who got your rebuke, who took your sin so that you can be reconciled to God and worship him. That's what Exodus tells us. The difference between Moses and Jesus is that Moses was a servant of God. Jesus is God's own son. Moses, at his best, participated in a foreshadow of redemption, but Jesus actually died in our place, taking our sin as the mediator and deliverer who stood on the cross, and when he died, that wall that protected the Israelites, that crushed the Egyptians, came crushing down on him as he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Takes our judgment, drinks the wrath that we deserve in our place as the greater and better deliverer, who delivers us not from the tyranny of of nations, but the tyranny of sin, death, and hell in all eternity. Jesus is the greater and the better mediator. Jesus is the greater and better deliverer. Exodus may be primarily about Moses, but it would utterly fall on its face. 
fail in its purposes if the life of Moses and the experience of ancient Israel do not lead us to see the true and better mediator. The gospel according to Moses. Jesus Christ on the cross broke, his body was broken, his blood was shed. Prophets of old, stories of old, narratives of old point to him. Even Jonah Bible said that Jesus is the greater and better Jonah. Why? Because Jonah, even though he was thrown in the sea and delivered the people on the boat, Jesus was thrown in the sea of wrath, condemnation, judgment on the cross for you and for me. Have you trusted Christ? Are you trying to get salvation on your own? You cannot. You can't work. Stand back. Be silent. Trust in the work of Jesus. The bread. We're going to have communion in a minute. I'm going to invite you to the Lord's table. If you're a Christian, you don't have to be a King's Chapel member. You could be, a, if you're a Christian, you love Jesus. Have you trusted? And you have trusted in his broken body, his shed blood. I invite you to the table. If you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to the Lord's table. But as a believer, turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus. Acknowledge him as the Savior and Lord of your life. Make him central to your life. He's Lord of the world. He's the only one that can set you free by being in complete submissive to, submission to. Trust Jesus. The band will play. We will confess our sins, all of us. We will repent of our sins, and then we will celebrate the blessed body and blood of Jesus as we come to his table, break his, uh, take his uh, bread and drink the blood, and we will rejoice and celebrate in that forgiveness. Have you trusted Christ? Have you trusted him to bring you over? Let's pray. Father, what a, what a great picture, what a great deliverance, what a great redemptive act that you have shown through your servant Moses. The way in which you move, the way in which you lead, the way in which you secure our salvation is unbelievable, incredible, glorious. Father, we know that it points to a greater glory, the glory of Jesus. Your word tells us that he is the glory of he is your glory. He is the revealed glory in the person and the work of Jesus. Lord, we pray. Lord, we pray that we would trust him today. He is worthy of our trust. We pray, Lord, that we have trust him that he died. He shed his blood. He redeemed us from sin, death, and hell. He took the waters of judgment so that we may have forgiveness of our sins. And now, Lord, as we sing, as we take communion, we remember all the work that he has done. Work in our hearts. Help us to grow in our faith. Help us to grow in trust of you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.